Finance. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest to find out how they achieved financial independence. Today's episode's a real treat for me because I'm getting to interview somebody that I'm a big fan of, and I actually don't know him personally, but a few weeks ago, I got an email from him, and I just assumed it was a normal newsletter email because I'm subscribed to his email list, but instead it was a personal email to me asking if I wanted a copy of his new book. And since I'm a huge fan, I, of course, said yes. And I also asked if he wanted to be interviewed for this show. And luckily, he agreed. So I'm really excited to chat with him for the first time. My guest is James Clear. And if you're one of the other 400,000 plus subscribers on his email list, you know that he's one of the best writers when it comes to motivation and habits and personal productivity and health and well-being and lots of different topics that are actually all the topics that I'm really needing to read about these days because... Now that I've left my job, I don't have any sort of external motivation to do things, but there are lots of goals and long-term projects that I want to make progress on, and his writing has been really instrumental in helping me make progress on those and do it in a way that's not difficult and is actually enjoyable. So I can't wait to talk to him about a lot of things, and also can't wait to dive into his new book, Atomic Habits. So without further delay, James, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thank you for having me. And before we start, I have to really thank you because I've been doing this for over six years. I've had like some of the top finance minds on the show. And this is actually the first time my wife has thought I was super cool when I told her that I had you on the show. So she doesn't care about money at all. So she doesn't know all the big finance names. But when I said you were coming on, she was so pumped about it. So thanks for uh, yeah, making me look cool in her eyes. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, thank you to her. And uh, I'm excited to be here. So thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And actually, a lot of thanks does go to her because over the last two years since I left my job, she has sent me, forwarded me about 10 of your emails. And because they've been exactly what I needed to read at the time that I needed to read them. And I've eventually, obviously, subscribed to your email list after the fact. Um, but yeah, so lots of great content that we're going to dive into. But before we get into like the specifics, um, I noticed on your about page that you say the the central question that you're trying to answer with your work is how can we live better? And the fact that you focus on these things like habits and motivation and making progress on things, I'm, I'm wondering, does that mean that you think that you know tackling big projects and doing work that you're proud of and making progress on important things that you are passionate about, is, is that what leads to a, a happy and good life? Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I think everyone wants to do work that matters. So there's, you know, everybody wants to feel respected to some degree. Um, and I feel that too. So, you know, I want, uh, I want my work to feel like it's making a difference and to hear stories like the one you just told. I mean, you know, that makes me feel great that you're finding their writing useful and it's been valuable to you at different points in your life and so on. I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the answer is to like what makes life meaningful or what makes a life uh, worthwhile or feel purposeful. I can say for me, the times when I have felt that the strongest have had some form of social connection. So either being part of a team or being a leader on a team where everyone's working toward a common goal, or in the case of my writing, uh, sharing articles each week and then getting the feedback from the audience. I actually didn't realize that until uh, I wrote a book, but writing my articles each week, I get feedback immediately. You know, I'll email everybody and then I get all these emails uh, back about what people liked or what they didn't. And I really thrive on that feedback, that social interaction. Um, and with the book, it was hard for me because I didn't get that right. as much. So that kind of clarified that uh, social connection was like an important part of that process for me. 
So I can't say what it is for everybody, but I can say that having that type of connection or uh, for me, what makes the work matter is that other people are finding it useful. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good insight. And it, since I've left my job, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the financial independence or the retirement community, but the the main focus seems to be like, okay, that people just want to get away from their jobs and save up enough money so that they never have to work again. And it's usually like getting away from something that's bad and not so much getting towards something as that's good. So like for me, when I hit that goal two years ago, I was then like, just dropped into this place where it's like, okay, now I'm really finding what's important to me and I'm trying to make progress on that. And that's where your work has been super beneficial. But it, it, it's, it's, it's a struggle because um, I don't know if you've heard this quote before, but I just came across it recently. And it's, we must all suffer one of two things, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And I realized that the, the, the dissatisfaction with my job wasn't because I had a bad job because that wasn't the case. It was the dissatisfaction, the pain of regret that I felt like I wasn't doing what I was actually meant to do and what I really wanted to do. Um, But when I had all the freedom in the world after leaving my job, that pain of regret was then substituted with the pain of discipline. And that's where you come in. And, And that's just equally as difficult. And you just wrote this fabulous book about habits. So my question to you is, do you think habits is the answer to the pain of discipline? Is that something that could drastically reduce that pain of discipline? Well, it's certainly one thing that can help a lot. So I, to answer, to reference your, your previous point, yeah, I'm very familiar with FIRE and the whole community. I've been kind of obsessed with it, really. I love the methodology and the thinking behind it. Um, I'll read the FIRE threads oh, on nice. Reddit and all that type of stuff. And um, I know uh, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, and we've talked a couple times. And anyway, so I, I appreciate a lot uh, behind the philosophy and the thinking. Uh, with reference to discipline and habits, habits are, I guess I should step back for a second and just talk about habits from a high level. So as you go through life, you face problems and many of those problems are small. Some of them are large, but like, for example, your shoe could be untied and needing to tie your shoes is a problem. It's a small problem, but it's something that you need to figure out. And so you tie your shoes and as you do it hundred or 200 or 300 times, uh, pretty soon you learn how to do it on autopilot and you can have a conversation while you're tying your shoes or think about something else. And this is sort of the purpose of habits and why your brain forms habits is that it allows you to solve problems that you face on a recurring or repeated basis in an automatic fashion so that you can free up your mind to focus on other things. You can direct your attention toward other areas. In the case of uh, discipline, habits make it easier to get into the work. And I think that is actually the, the key step to focus on. They don't necessarily make hard tasks uh, easy or painless, but they can make it more painless to get, or le- uh, sorry, less painful to get into the work. And so sometimes I like to think about habits like an entrance ramp to a highway. You know, like you, you kind of slide onto this entrance ramp. You don't have to be moving that fast. It's not that difficult. You don't want to think about it. And before you know, before you know it, you're speeding 60 miles an hour down the other direction. Um, and a well-placed habit can sort of act like that in your life. It allows you to automate the beginning of a routine. And by automating the beginning and making it a ritual, you make it more automatic and easier to get into the work. And once you're there, well, then you probably have to still focus and, uh, you know, exert some effort to get the workout done or to finish writing that chapter or whatever it is that you're working on. But if you can make it as painless as possible to start, then uh, it becomes easier to start each day. And in many ways, habits are just 
an exercise in starting each day. If you can get started each time, then it is a habit. Yeah, that, that's been key uh, for helping me. One of your articles talks about the physics of productivity. And that was huge for me. And it's talking about like having a nice, easy pregame to then, you know, to get you to get into that habit. And then, you know, that launches into letting you get to the work. One of the big projects that I've only started to work on after leaving my um, software career is just writing music. That's always been a dream of mine to write an album. Doesn't matter if anybody buys it, just to have an album that I've written that I'm proud of. And but that's so daunting, especially for like a math and science guy like me. Like, how do you just pull a song out of thin air? Um, so when I read your physics of productivity, uh, I, I now have this like really easy entrance ramp. And that's just actively listening to one song that I like every day. And so I sit there mm. with headphones on that are like my monitoring headphones that are like really sensitive. So I can hear all the different aspects of it. And I listen to the song three times, just like picking out like production techniques and trying to just like really understand how it was put together. And by the end of it, I already have my headphones in so I can just plug in and start actually writing music. I've already been like amped up about it because I'm like, wow, this song is great. I would love to make a song this good myself. And I usually pick out like some sort of production thing that happened in the song. And I'm like, oh, I should try that on the song I'm working on. So it's like this perfect, easy thing that I can get started because it's not intimidating. It's like you hear you have to listen to music. It's just like, oh, I love doing that. So it's not it's not (laughs) painful and not intimidating. But then it launches me right into this really hard task. And thanks a lot for that uh, physics of productivity post. Is that probably one of the core aspects of like starting a new habit, do you think, is trying to find that easy on-ramp to get that habit a daily practice? Yeah. So that's a great example. What you just gave is a great example of what I call a motivation ritual in the uh, in the book. So a motivation ritual is just what you described. It's something that you do that's very simple at the beginning that kind of gets you excited to do the work. Um, so, or at least get you in the right mindset. I played baseball for many years. And when I was playing in college, I would follow the same ritual at the beginning of each game. And one of the things that's somewhat challenging about baseball as a sport is that there are so many games uh, <laughs> compared to other sports you just are playing constantly. And so coaches are always saying things like, all right, we've got to find a way to be motivated today. We've got to find a way to be up and be ready to play and so on. And uh, there are going to be some days where you show up and you just don't feel like it. You don't feel like you're into it. And so for me, that ritual, I was the same or number of stretches and um, running and then the same kind of warm up and number of throws and so on. And by the time that I finished that, I was like, all right, now my, it was like a switch had been flipped and my brain was like, okay, it's time to be in game mode. And so in many ways, rituals like that can act that way. But I think that there's, uh, you asked like, is that the right way to start a habit and so on? Uh, What I usually recommend to people is what I call the two minute rule. So the basic idea is many of the habits that we want to follow cannot be completed in two minutes, but pretty much any habit can be started in less than two minutes. So for example, you know, go for a run becomes put on my running shoes and step out the door or do 30 minutes of yoga becomes take out my yoga mat or read one book every week becomes read one page. I have a, a friend, a poet, who his uh, habit each day is to write one sentence. Now, hmm. sometimes he writes a whole poem or he'll write you know, multiple pages, but every day just tries to write one sentence. And sometimes people think this sounds a little bit like a trick, like, you know, okay, I know the real goal is to go for a run. Like, I'm not actually just trying to put my running shoes on and get out the door each day. But what people fail to realize, especially in the beginning, is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. 
So you don't even have the chance to optimize something if you don't master the art of showing up every day. And there are all these little logistical details associated with building a new habit that nobody really thinks about. Like whenever we think about a new habit or, you know, some kind of goal that we want to accomplish, we're always focused on the outcome. We're always trying to optimize for the finish line. We think about, you know, in your example, the, you know, the great song that you want to produce, or we think about making six figures next year or losing 40 pounds in the next six months. It's always focused on the the end goal, the finish line. But instead, I think we should optimize for the starting line, not the finish line. And by doing that, by scaling it down to the first two minutes and making it as easy as possible, you start to figure out a lot of these logistical details that you don't think about beforehand. Like if you're, you know, say, for example, uh, I had a reader who he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And uh, one of the ways that he did it was that he went to the gym, but he didn't allow himself to stay for longer than five minutes. So. He would go, he'd show up, he'd do like a couple, you know, an exercise or something. And then once it hit five minutes, he would leave. And he did this for like the first six weeks. And it sounds like he's not really doing anything. But what you fail to realize is that there are all these questions you have to answer when you're starting a new habit. Like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym. What gym will I go to? Uh, how will I get there? What, what road will I take? What path will I follow? Am I going to meet a friend there? Or am I going by myself? What time of day am I going to go? Do I need to get my gym bag ready before I go to work? Or can I get my gym clothes afterward? And like all of those little things that you don't think about because you're just thinking about the outcome that you want, they kind of become these points of friction. And if you make it as easy as possible and you just focus on the first two minutes, or in his case, the first five minutes, then you can get all that stuff figured out. And then by the time you, you know, he turned around like six weeks later and he was like, well, I'm coming here all the time. I kind of feel like doing something more. Um and that's like the complete opposite of how most people build a habit. You know, most people are like, all right, let me do insanity or P90X or join a CrossFit gym or do something like really intense because I'm all motivated and I want to get in shape. And uh, then it starts to feel like a hassle because the workout is a hassle. All the figuring out all those logistics is a hassle. And uh, suddenly they, you know, it's like there's too much friction. and They burn out after a week or two. And um, so my recommendation is to scale it down to the first two minutes, get the habit established and master the art of showing up. And then you have the chance to optimize and improve from there. But if, if you, if you don't show up each day, then, you know, you, you don't have a, the option to, to get better anyway. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And that's definitely something I found as well. When I was trying to do an hour a day, at least, uh, there'd be days where I knew I wouldn't hit that hour. So I would just not do anything or I would just wouldn't feel up to doing an hour. So I wouldn't do anything. But when I lowered that mm-hmm. to 15 minutes, then I would always show up for the, for the 15 minutes and that would always usually go past an hour, which was great. So yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. I'm wondering when you're doing all the research for the book, if you came o- came across any like core keystone habits that then led to like big life changes in other ways, like just from my personal experience, I started going to the gym two years ago and just lifting three or four days a week. And that's the thing that eventually got me to floss, which is something I was always trying to do for the for the previous like 10 or 15 years, which is crazy. And the reason is, is like I would go to the gym and then I would obviously want to eat healthier. And so that led to a better eating habit, which often entailed like lots of seeds and nuts. And then that would lead to me wanting to floss because I had seeds in my teeth all the time. And and it also led to like not drinking as much beer because I did all this hard work at the gym. So I didn't want to ruin it by just drinking a bunch of alcohol. So it was like mm-hmm. one core habit then led to these three other habits of healthy eating, less drinking and flossing that I would never even anticipated. And I was wondering if you came across any other sort of habits like that that led to other great changes. 
Isn't that interesting how you eat better when you work out? You could like <laughs> be like, oh no, I, you know, now I actually did something. I could have a donut, but, um, but instead you like don't want to waste it. Exactly. But so, uh, I have a similar keystone habit. Mine is, is also working out. So I usually train four or five days a week. Uh, and if I get those four days in, then a lot of other things happen. Similar to what you mentioned, you know, I'll sleep better at night because I'm tired from working out. I, which means I wake up in the morning and I have more energy and I'm better focused. I eat better because I don't want to, you know, waste the effort uh, that I put in at the gym. I get this like post-workout high for an hour or so where I'm, I'm like really focused and have some clear thoughts and can write well. And at no point was I trying to build better sleep habits or focus <laughs> habits or energy habits or, you know, whatever. It was all just kind of this natural ripple effect that came from getting into the gym. And there are some common ones to answer your question. So, you know, exercise is a popular one especially among creatives, you'll hear going for a daily walk is a big one. Mm. Um, you know, there are a lot of people, there's a book called daily rituals by Mason Curie. And, uh, it talks about kind of the daily rituals and habits of a lot of these famous writers and scientists and, uh, musicians and so on. And it's an interesting read. Like you end up finishing it and feeling like 80% of them were on amphetamines or alcoholics <laughs> or some kind of crazy addiction. But the ones who are clean, uh, going for a daily walk is often a huge part of their process. So that's one budgeting, interestingly, is one when people like pay off their debt or get their finances in order, they will, you know, sometimes like start working out or they'll uh, start eating healthier or so on. It kind of like ripples into another area for performers. Visualization is often a big one. So you'll hear comedians, for example, say that they like do the same kind of visualization routine each time before they step on stage or basketball players, same kind of thing, they'll visualize before the game. And then the, the last one that I've come across that's fairly common is meditation. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you'll hear CEOs say that, like, if they can get their 10 minutes of meditation in each day, then the rest of the day feels like it kind of goes better. or They're more well-equipped to handle what, ha what happens throughout the day. And for people who are listening to this, what I would suggest is you don't have to do all of those, of course. You're just trying to figure out, like, what is the keystone habit for me? And I think you can simply just do it, sit down and think about it for five minutes. Like, what do I do on days when things go well for me? When my life seems to feels like it falls in line, like what usually happens on those days? Or if I was going to plan out my ideal day, what would be included? And you'll usually come up with maybe two or three of those uh, things that I just mentioned or, you know, something similar that feels like, okay, maybe this could be a keystone habit. And then I would say, forget about everything else. Just focus on that for the next month. And really, you could combine the strategy we just talked about. You know, how can you make the first two minutes of meditation as easy as possible? Or how can you make the first two minutes of the workout as easy as possible? And uh, what you find is that there, this is kind of an ironic thing about making change and how habits sort of compound and make a difference in our lives. There doesn't necessarily need to be that much to do. Like you could just focus on what you think this keystone habit could be and the first two minutes of it, making it as easy as possible to start. And if you just did that for a month, you might find that there are all sorts of positive benefits that are happening a month or two or five months later. And um, I would encourage people to start there. That's kind of like a nice, easy, but high value way to get started. And that's one of the things that I tried to focus on the book. Like, what are these tiny changes that can lead to remarkable results in the long run? Absolutely. And yeah, the, you sent me the first three chapters because the book's not out yet and I haven't got the full copy yet. And I can see why you sent me the f first three because it's just like it sucked me in so much and I'm, I can't wait for the rest of the book. And although I could talk to you about habits all day, I, I think the book's going to cover it beautifully. And it's called Atomic Habits. And that's just as you said, they're small 
tiny habits that just have big, big changes can make your life completely different just with a tiny little habit. So um, I definitely recommend anyone go out and get it. And I'll put a link in the show notes. But since the book covers it so well, I'm going to move on to another topic that I'm really interested in that you cover so well, and that's deliberate practice. So I I don't know if if, if you wouldn't mind just maybe just giving a quick run through of what deliberate practice is and then how that is different from habits because habits are sort of the enemy of deliberate practice, which is which is what you've said in some of your posts, and maybe explain why. Sure. So you haven't seen this section yet, but the uh, the last chapter of the book is called The Downside of Good Habits. Oh, cool. And uh, it references this issue, uh, this like dichotomy between habits and deliberate practice. And deliberate practice, just to give us all a working definition here, uh, I think we're, most of us are familiar with putting some kind of practice in, but then, you know, it becomes mindless. You're a kid and you're practicing piano all the time. And you're just kind of like, you know, mailing it in and putting the work in to, as your parents told you to be there. Or, uh, you know, you're shooting a basketball outside, but you're just kind of like throwing it up. You're not really thinking about it carefully. Deliberate practice is the opposite. It's focused, purposeful practice. So one example that I give in an article I wrote on, on this topic is, you know, imagine two players who are shooting uh, free throws on a basketball court. The first is just like shooting and, you know, takes some breaks, talks to friends, whatever. The other one shoots and after every 10 shots uh, has recorded what, how many they made, how many they missed and the ones that missed where they missed. Was it too long? Was it too short? To the right, to the left and so on. And then they review that after every 10 and then they shoot another set of 10 and do it again. And it's like, okay, these two players do this for an hour. Who do you think ends up um, shooting better? And the point here is that purposeful, deliberate practice, focused practice where you're paying attention to the errors and mistakes that you make, it makes you aware of what you need to change and of where you need to improve. And this is where the, the conversation returns to habits, which is that in the beginning, one of the most important and essential things for building a habit is to put in your reps. And in fact, what you find is that habits are a prerequisite for mastery. They're required to, to build this foundation. If you want to be a great chess player, for example, well, you need to automate and effectively learn how all the pieces move and where everything goes and be able to do that on autopilot before you can think about advancing to the next level of the game and starting to think about deeper strategy and so on. And this is true at every level. Like as you progress up, you need to be able to internalize and automate whatever the skills were that you were working on, that you were practicing deliberately, and then use that as the foundation for the next level of deliberate practice. Now, the challenge is as something becomes a habit, and this is kind of the point of building habits, is that you pay less attention to it. Once you can do it on autopilot good enough, you stop thinking about how to do it better. You stop paying attention to maybe where your mistakes are. And in fact, there's a body of research that uh, shows this, that as people habituate and internalize uh, different tasks, there is often actually a slight decline in performance. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, they'll often find that surgeons have actually the best outcomes like pretty early on in their career, maybe a few years out from residency. And then after they've been doing it for years, there's maybe a slight dip. doesn't mean they're bad at it, but they aren't as at their peak anymore. And a lot of this is because of uh, the fact that we overlook our errors and mistakes as things become habituated. So the process of improvement, it's sort of like a cycle. You know, it has to start with some level of awareness. If you're not aware of your habits or if you're not aware of your behaviors, then it's hard to design them in any meaningful way. Then there's a period of deliberate practice where you're practicing a new habit for the first time or you're working on a new skill and you have to, it requires effort and attention and focus. 
But with practice, it becomes a habit. And then eventually we have to close the loop and return back to awareness Mm. because now we're on autopilot and we have to come back to where we were before. And uh, so that's kind of how I see habits and deliberate practice working in concert with each other. We need to habitualize skills so that we can free up the energy and attention to focus on the next thing. You know, like all the best basketball players in the world can dribble with their left hand without thinking. And that allows them to, or their opposite hand without thinking. And that allows them to work on other stuff like complicated shots or different offensive schemes or, you know, where they need to be on the court at what time and all that type of stuff. Uh, But it's only once you've habitualized the fundamentals that you can move on to, to the advanced stuff. But once you get to that point, it's a never ending cycle. You need to use that as the foundation for the next level of growth and deliberate practice. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm, I'm excited that you do tackle that in the book because yeah, I think that seems like a very important piece. And I'm wondering, I, I imagine you've worked with some top performers and some, you know, impressive people to, to work through some of these things. And the one thing about deliberate practice for me that is a bit complicated. It's like, okay, yeah, for something like practicing guitar, um, it was, it was perfect for that. So, so I, I've played guitar since I was 10 and I was, I was learning this Bach classical guitar piece for maybe 10 years. And once I stopped lessons, I was like halfway through it. And this, then this 10 year period of me just playing it, getting to the part where I didn't know, and then trying to learn that next part, but not really focusing. So it, it was like useless. It was like me playing for three minutes, the part that I knew, playing two seconds, the part that I didn't know, and then screwing it up and then starting again and thinking that I would get better somehow doing that. And I honestly did that for like 10 years. And then once I learned about deliberate practice, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I need to actually focus on the part that I can't play and not keep playing the part that sounds great and makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) Um, So what I did is I slowed down the tempo and just practiced the part that I couldn't get. And then once I could get it, I brought the tempo back up and then I integrated with the rest of the piece. And then I just did that and that for a few months and then eventually just nailed the whole thing when, like I said, 10 years of just playing it randomly just didn't work and didn't get me any further. And that, that makes sense. Like deliberate practice there. Like I can, my feedback is getting listening to this bad sound, realizing that I need to practice it, slowing it down. And that all makes sense. But for something like that's both exciting and like incredibly annoying, you know, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> man, I can't believe I did this for a decade. Oh, exactly. It was insane. And yeah, it, it was so quick to then just perfect it in when practicing the right way. My thing is like, OK, so that's that, that makes sense to me. But for something like songwriting or something that's not as like, OK, you're just putting in the reps have you had to work with anyone in that sort of scenario where it's more like maybe creative and less defined practice routines? And if so, how do you tackle something like that? Yeah, this is one of the criticisms of deliberate practice as a field is that um, it works really well for well-defined fields, especially, you know, sports or any type of competition, um, you know, where success is easily measured. Uh, for example, you know, did you play the correct note or not, or did you make the ideal chess move or not, or did you end up with most points at the end of the game? Then it's very easy to measure, uh, whether you're moving in the right direction. And I have a a chapter in the book where I discuss measurement a little bit. And one of the challenges of measuring, well, one of the benefits of measuring is that, well, there are three things really. So the first is that measurement makes a habit more obvious uh, it makes a behavior more obvious. So by measuring something, you become aware of it. 
Secondly, there's sort of, uh, when you're making progress, there's an additive effect to measurement. So like, for example, by tracking each time you do a behavior or each time you perform a habit, like if you put an X on the calendar every day that you practice guitar, then you start to see those build up and you get motivated to stick with it. And then the third thing, and this is kind of essential to the conversation we're having now, is that measurement makes a habit satisfying. It adds uh, sort of an immediate bit of gratification to doing the work. So if you're able to check an X off on the calendar, then you, you feel like, oh, this is good. I got my, my work in for today. So even though, even though you might not be able to play the piece in full yet, which is what the real thing you're working toward, it doesn't feel like you totally have to delay gratification because you still get the immediate gratification of measuring it and marking an X off and so on. Now, the challenge is that, and this is something that's called Goodhart's Law, which is that a measure ceases to be a good measure when it becomes the target. Mm. In other words, a measure is only useful when, as it, when it informs you or when it is like a bit of data that kind of nudges you toward the, the ultimate thing. But when it all becomes about the measurement, when the only thing that matters is hitting the quarterly numbers in the business or hitting a particular number on the scale, then you you start to sacrifice. Like you don't even care about health anymore. You just care about hitting the number on the scale. Um, and so you're over-focused on measurement. And I would say that that uh, can actually be a downside uh, to deliberate practice is that sometimes if you're so focused on measurement, it can pull you off course. So the question that you asked about some of these fields that don't necessarily lend themselves to measurement are more creative, a little bit less quantitative or harder to measure. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't perform deliberate practice or even really that it's a disadvantage. Uh, it might not be as quantifiable, but what I would say is that what you're looking for and the, the per one of the purposes the measurement should provide is that it provides an emotional signal that you're moving in the right direction. So it provides a signal of progress. And that's really all that you're looking for. So in a creative field, you can have that, but maybe it just has to come in a different way. So as an example, let's take the, the uh, scale and the weight example I just gave. If you're obsessed with the number on the scale, then that measure is no longer really that productive or beneficial to practicing good health, whether that's a diet you're trying to follow or a workout you're trying to do. And so it might be more useful to shift to a different form of measurement, uh, so to speak, that gives you feelings of progress or makes you feel satisfied. So this is where stuff like uh, they're called non-scale victories come into play. So maybe, maybe you stop looking at the scale or maybe the number on the scale hasn't moved, but you feel like your energy is better or you can fit into a pair of jeans that you couldn't fit into before, or your skin looks better in the mirror or um, your libido is up. Like all of these are measurements in a certain sense that you're making progress. And when you're dealing with a creative field or something that is not as quantifiable, you have to start looking for things like that. So you may not be able to track it, but how can I, how can I find a positive emotional signal that I'm making progress and moving in the right direction? And that of course depends on what kind of field you're working on and, and you know what the particular problem is. But the core point here is that behaviors need to be satisfying for the, for you to have a reason to repeat them. You need to have the, and it's particularly important that they're immediately satisfying, that you kind of feel successful right at the ending of the behavior. Because if you do, then it's like a, a signal to your brain. Oh, hey, this felt good. You should do this again. You should practice again. Um, if all you feel is negative emotion or some kind of pain or punishment or sacrifice, then you don't have much reason to repeat the behavior. 
And this is why we often find ourselves slipping into uh, behaviors that just feel good in the moment, even if they don't serve us in the long run. Right. Yeah, no, I, that rings true with my experience as well. Like at first for the songwriting thing, it was like, okay, my goal is to write the song and then I would finish it and it wouldn't be that very, wouldn't be very good. Cause it was like the first song I wrote and I would be pretty disappointed with it. So then I've since switched over to recording just the number of hours that I put in, because that's something I can't control. Um, also recording the number of songs I finish and then I've given finished songs to my brother to then give me this, you know, go through this Google form that I created to like actually grade it. So then I, I'm getting some external feedback because I know that's important mm. in deliberate practice as well. And that seems to be working better because when I get to the end of my say I do two hours, then I feel really good because I can put in my spreadsheet. I did two hours and that's two hours of hard work that I put in. And then obviously it's nice to put a one or a two next to the month if I completed one or two songs that month, because that's the actual end goal was to write songs. And then right. and then obviously getting that external feedback is always great, especially from someone who I don't care if he knows it sounds like crap. So, right. so yeah. yeah, I think people who are so appear to be good at delaying gratification, uh, which is something that like a lot of this uh, comes back to or a lot of the research talks about, you know, like you need to be willing to to fo stay focused and stay aware of your mistakes and continue to improve and delay the ultimate gratification of writing a song or being good at whatever the craft is. But what I find or what my theory is that people who appear to be good at delaying gratification are often just good at finding alternative ways to be satisfied in the moment. Mm. So for you, it's recording that on the spreadsheet, you know, like it gives you a reason to feel successful right then. And that's particularly important for, uh, for building a habit or for, you know, having some reason to revisit it. And uh, it, there are all sorts of examples of products that have done this. So for example, chewing gum had been around for decades, been hundreds of years um, before it became really popular. And that's because for a long time it was just chewy, but it wasn't tasty. It was like this kind of bland resin. <laughs> and then in the late 1800s, Wrigley was created juicy fruit and spearmint and they added flavors to the gum. So it was like immediately satisfying to chew it. And all of a sudden chewing gum exploded and they became the biggest chewing gum company in the world. And it was largely because there was suddenly like this immediate feedback, loop, right. this immediate uh, sense of satisfaction. And, you know, that doesn't work for every habit. It's, you can't always have some instant uh, bit like that, but what I think the ultimate form of immediate gratification is, is a, a reaffirmment or a reinforcing of your identity. So, you know, if you want to be the type of person who writes music every day, then each time you sit down to write music, you are being that person. And that is, once you start to adopt that identity, that's a very powerful place to be. Because like for me, part of my identity is I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. So each time I go to the gym, I'm like casting a vote for being that type of person. And it might take months for me to hit whatever, you know, number I want to hit on a particular lift or for my body to change in the mirror. But each day I get to have that sense of satisfaction of forging that identity and being that type of person. And that's one reason why I think identity-based habits are so powerful, because if you can root it in a belief like that, every time you do the behavior, you are being that. Um, and it's a, it's sort of an instant form of, of success. Yeah, that's huge. And that, that goes back to the whole, you know, eating healthy and not drinking as much beer after working out. Cause I, I felt like, Hey, uh, no, now I'm a gym guy, you know, I'm a, I'm an athlete or a, a lifter and all these other, uh, things that I never thought I was before when I was just a, you know, geeky, lazy computer programmer. 
And I think that's an important point though. You don't want to cast votes for competing identities, right? Like if you go to the gym and then you go eat ice cream afterward, it's kind of like, well, it sort of cancels out. Like right. which identity are you? Um, and so I think it's important to find ways to reward yourself that reinforce the identity that you're, you're looking to build. You know, for example, um, you know, if you're talking about fire and people saving for retirement, well, you could say that your reward for hitting some savings goal is like buying a leather jacket. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it sort of conflicts with the idea of saving. Yeah. And so what about, it could be something like uh, your reward is, you know, you go camping for a week or you get to go to, uh, for a walk in the woods or you have, uh, you know, 30 minutes to yourself for a bubble bath or something. And that, those type of rewards more align with this idea of like, my ultimate goal is to have freedom and control of my time. And so you're, you're casting a vote for that identity whenever you save, because you're saving towards freedom and, uh, and optionality and uh, power and control over your time. And when you reward yourself with that, like, okay, now I get 30 minutes just to relax. Then you kind of like are re reinforcing that identity again. And I think that it's important to find ways to, to reward yourself that still reinforce the desired identity. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because this is something that you have directly changed in my life. So I really want to talk to you about it. And that's intermittent fasting. Um, my wife sent me an article uh, from yours, from your email list about intermittent fasting. And it, it was it already aligned closely with my eating habits to begin with. So it was a fairly easy change to switch over, but it's been it's been great. And I just want to maybe get you to, just to quickly describe it and then maybe talk about your personal intermittent fasting schedule and what you find is the most optimal for you. Sure. So I've been doing intermittent fasting for, uh, it's been a while now. I probably even get this wrong. It's been at least five years, probably more like six or seven. And I'm not militant about it. Uh, I probably do it, I would say like 330 days out of the year or so. But if I can't do it while I'm traveling or if I'm on vacation or we have friends over and things change, like I, I'm not really worried about that. Um, and this is sort of a theme of my approach to intermittent fasting and really a lot of my philosophy for approaching other problems of behavior change or improvement, which is that we need to stretch the time scales out a little bit. Like you don't need to worry so much about what you're eating on a 24 hour basis um, or uh, even on a, a smaller scale. Like, are you having a meal every hour or something? So to get everybody up to speed. Um, intermittent fasting is not a diet. You don't, if you want to change your diet and eat paleo or keto or vegan or whatever, like that's a different conversation, uh, the type of food that you're eating, but it's simply a schedule for when you eat. So, um, the most popular style is an eight 16 split. So you would eat all of your meals during eight hours. So usually for me, it's like somewhere around like noon to 8 PM. And then uh, you fast for the next 16 hours. So you'd stop eating around eight and then you don't eat until noon the next day. So in this, in this example, you would be skipping breakfast. There are other schedules that you can follow. For example, some people eat their normal pattern six days a week and then they just fast for one day. So like on Sunday, they just won't eat anything. Um, they'll just have water, for example. And, uh, this is, you know, some of the most common questions I get, like, can I drink water? Can I drink coffee? Um, yes. Like you can, I drink tons of water. Uh, so you continue drinking throughout the day, 
coffee, the general rule of thumb is if you have less than 50 calories while you're fasted, then you're not going to break the fasted state. Now you can't just keep having 50 calorie things because <laughs> right. then those that eventually uh, adds up and crosses that threshold. Um, but if you want to have a cup of coffee with like a splash of milk in the morning or something, that's probably fine. So the the reason intermittent fasting got popular is uh, it was largely popularized by Martin Burkhan, who runs a site called Lean Gains. And uh, he was this big ripped bodybuilder and he followed this pattern. And uh, there is some scientific evidence that shows that fasting like this will uh, alter your insulin levels and put you in potentially a more fat burning state. I was mostly interested in it from a simplicity standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I, I like having one less meal to prep each day. I like having one less meal to think about each day. I like having one less meal to clean up for each day. Um, I also like, you know, I work out of the home office. And so I love the fact that I wake up, get ready, have a glass of water, walk 10 seconds to my office and I can be writing or into whatever work I need to be doing like really quickly. It removes, uh, another point of friction at the beginning of my day. So I like that, that I can get into my day right away. And I like the fact that it simplifies my life a little bit. The other thing is, and this comes back to the time scale piece I mentioned earlier, you know, I was interested, like, is this going to affect my training? Will it affect my workouts, or my energy levels throughout the day or whatnot? And I think we, I don't know if it's from advertising or if it's just a societal conversation now, but I, I think that we've become a little too hyper-focused on making sure we eat all the time. And if you get, you know, say, say, let's say you eat 2,500 calories in a day. Well, if you have 2,500 calories between say noon and 8 PM, like we're talking about here, or you have 2,500 calories between say 8 AM and 8 PM, um, and you eat breakfast at eight. Well, like at the end of each day, does it really make that big of a difference? I kind of feel like your body's going to figure out what to do with the food. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it, I just don't know that it's going to be that meaningful. And to kind of further the point. most of us have had, you know, you go out for drinks on Friday night and you sleep in on Saturday or something, and then you don't eat brunch until 1130 or one even. Um, So you've kind of unintentionally intermittent fasted that day. And you didn't think twice about it. You didn't even like, it it wasn't even a big deal at all. You were fine. So it's many people it happens to randomly every now and then anyway. So to do it in a little bit more consistent fashion, uh, it doesn't, I don't think it makes as meaningful of a difference as, um, as many people are worried about. And this is one of the, the weird things about intermittent fasting, which is that for many new behaviors and habits, they're very easy to do mentally, like mentally, like, oh yeah, of course I should like go to the gym and work out for two hours to get fit and like do all this stuff. But then they're really hard to practice physically. So you go there and it's like, oh man, after doing CrossFit for two weeks, like, I'm out of this. <laughs> yeah. um, but intermittent fasting is the opposite. It's incredibly easy to do physically. You do nothing. You just don't eat a meal. Um, the hard part is mentally people are like, wait, skip breakfast. I can't do that. Like that sounds crazy. And, uh, as soon as you can get over that mental hurdle, uh, it's incredibly easy to practice. All you do is just grab a glass of water and get to work. And it gets um, easier and easier. I found like it just, your body just adapts so quickly, I think to the, to the new schedule. And it, I feel less hungry even in just odd times than I would in the normal schedule. It's, it's been, Oh, I don't impressive. even think about it now. Yeah. It's uh, it's automatic now. Okay. So some people are going to wonder about the fat loss benefits and does it actually burn more fat and all that type of stuff. Uh, my personal opinion is that, um, and there have been research studies done on whether intermittent fasting adds up and, you know, makes a difference like that. 
most of the research is like, if it does, it's a minimal effect. But the real reason I think people lose weight when intermittent fasting is that they eat fewer meals. And because they're eating fewer meals, it's kind of, they, if you just eat your normal lunch and eat your normal dinner, by the time you finish that meal, you'll probably feel about the same as you usually do. Uh, and so you just cut like a third of the calories out, or maybe it's, you know, if you have a smaller breakfast, maybe it's a fifth of your calories each day. And even if you have slightly more, uh, a slightly larger serving at lunch and dinner than you normally would, because you, you didn't eat in the morning, you probably aren't having like one and a half times, uh, more. And so the end result is maybe you cut out a hundred or 300 or 500 calories a day. And once you do that and just stick to that for three months or six months or whatever, then yeah, you end up losing a little bit of weight. So I think that it's a, uh, it's kind of a brain dead, simple way to re reduce the number of calories that you're going to have. And by doing that, eventually it adds up and you also reduce the, uh, the amount of weight that you have. Yeah. Especially considering how sweet and sugary most American breakfasts probably are, and especially the ones that are grabbed on the go. So it does make a lot of sense as, as far as someone like me who is lifting and who's trying to put on mass a bit rather than lose weight. Have you found the lean gains attitude of like maybe doing some like a protein shake or, uh, something before a, a workout is, is beneficial or yeah, I mean, I've been trying to and have been slowly bulking up for, uh, I don't know, a couple of years now. But I am now mostly in a maintenance phase in the sense that I, I don't need to get that much bigger than I am now, although I would like to continue to get stronger. So we'll see how that goes. Usually those things don't add up well together. <laughs> okay, so I train in the evening, um, usually around like 5 p.m. or so, okay. which means I'm in the middle of my eating window. Sure. So I don't have to train fasted. Now, if you train in the morning, which I have done and I have trained fasted before, uh, if you're going to lift for an hour or so, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. Uh, if you want to have a protein shake, that's probably fine. Um, I would look for something that is on the lower calorie end. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if people are getting really obsessed with it, they uh, want to have BCAAs instead sure. of an actual protein shake because then they, they don't have to worry about the calories. But if you're going to do something longer than an hour, an hour and a half, if you're going to do like a three-hour bike ride or some kind of endurance training for a triathlon or something. I don't know that my recommendation would be to train fasted if that's the case. Sure. Um, I think that it's probably better to have something before a long training session like that. But as with all of this stuff, uh, your mileage may vary. And uh, I think the best thing to do is just to try it out and test it a few times and see how it goes. That's what I did. And I ended up settling on, yeah, I get my best lifts in when I'm lifting in the early evening rather than uh, in the morning. Okay. How, do you do any sort of longer fasts, like 24-hour, 48-hour fast? Or? I have. Sometimes I find that to be a very effective strategy. I think the longest I've done is 36 hours or something like that, um, maybe 40. But uh, the sometimes I find it to be an effective strategy when I'm traveling because right. a lot of times airport food is terrible. <laughs> and so if you just treat it as, all right, I'm just going to fast for today. Uh, then you just, you know, grab some waters and go to your destination and then you wake up the next morning and have breakfast. So that's, um, that sometimes I find that to be useful. Cool. Well, we're getting to the end of the hour. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sure you're a busy man these days. So, um, I usually ask all my guests, what's one piece of advice they'd give to somebody on the path to financial independence. And I'm going to ask you and you're welcome to take it a non-financial direction or keep it financial. It's, it's totally up to you. Well, I, uh, I write not just about habits, but also about decision-making and mental models. And uh, one of my favorite mental models, or just you could think of this as like a lens for looking at the world, is uh, inversion. 
So the way that inversion works is you take what you want to achieve and you imagine the opposite. So for example, the ancient Stoics and Greek philosophers, they used to perform what they would call a premeditation of evils. So they would uh, meditate or think about the opposite of what they wanted. So for example, what if I became homeless or what if I lost the ability to walk or what if my spouse left me? And the point is not to make yourself depressed about these things, but to think through what the scenario would be like to try to fortify your mental uh, outlook so that you could be able to handle uh, when life, you know, throws something your way. And then also, and most importantly, to be able to prepare for that. So what can I do to prevent that from happening? And I find that to be an incredibly effective approach for dealing with daily life. And of course, with finances as well. So the question you can ask yourself is, all right, if I want to retire early, what would I do to make sure that I could never retire? Well, maybe I would buy a house that would be like way beyond <laughs> my ability to pay, or I would uh, purchase more cars than I need, or I would spend money on frivolous things and not save automatically each month. And the point is, as you go through this exercise and get more deep uh, with the details, you start to identify essentially what are the stupid things that you should make sure you don't do. And this is something that uh, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's longtime business partner, he says that much of the success that they have had in business has not been because they have been incredibly intelligent, but because they've avoided making stupid mistakes and dumb decisions. And this sounds simple, but it's actually harder than you'd think in practice. Uh, and one of the reasons is because of lifestyle creep. People get a promotion and then they're like, well, maybe we could get a bigger house. Like we could afford the mortgage payment. And you start talking yourself into all sorts of things that may not be ideal for your particular situation or for your long-term goals. And so I think it's important to practice inversion on a consistent basis just to try to see like, what is the other side? Uh, what would be the dumb decision that we don't want to make a, a mistake on? And how can we prepare and prevent that uh, currently? That's a very cool answer. And uh, yeah, I remember, I think, reading an article maybe on your site that talks about that. So I will try to find that and I will put a link to that and all the other articles that I've mentioned in the show notes and also a link to the book, which is Atomic Habits, which I'm super excited to finish. So James, I really can't thank you enough. This has been a treat. I can't wait for my wife to hear it. She'll think I'm the, the man for being able to talk to you and uh, ask all these questions that she's been forwarded in these articles for years. So I uh, really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck with the book and anything I can do to help. I'm happy to. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, as one final thing, if folks are interested in uh, checking the book out, atomichabits.com is the best place to go. Uh, oh, so perfect. you can find the book there. Excellent. That's great, James. Thanks so much. Uh, and I will hopefully speak to you soon. Finance. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.